This is It's PR Darlings, a podcast all about the dark arts of public relations, publicity and all things media. His real talent, we think, is finding the magic in the everyday. So welcome to It's PR Darlings, Trent Dalton. Oh, thank you so much, you two. It was PR people who got me an interview with Anthony Hopkins, Matt Damon, Heath Ledger. Those sort of stories were the ones that got noticed by the people uh, who hired me for my dream type journalism job. Join us to learn more about the world of PR and how it can help build your business. So Chief, is your publicist? Any success of Boyce Waller's universe um, and all our shimmering skies, you know, I just, it's just owes, I just owe to her. And if you're just starting your PR career, then come along for the ride. We're speaking to all kinds of journalists, producers and industry professionals. Great question. Like the first thing I'm looking for is, is this a story that will sustain the reader across 4,000 words? I'm Greer Quinn from Forward Communications. It's as good as directing in Australia gets. So, I mean, I'm dying to tell you the name. And I'm Joe Stone from Sticks and Stones PR. And together we are your PR darlings. I spent a week with this family, right? And uh, and I went inside their house for so long. And I was just sitting in the corner of their living room. Like, <laughs> like, seriously, with a notepad. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to It's PR Darlings. This is the podcast to listen to if you want to know more about the media, publicity and public relations. I'm Greer Quinn. And I'm Jo Stone. Each episode of It's PR Darlings is brought to you by a piece of industry lingo. Today's jargon gem is op-ed. It's got a very particular style and a very particular place in the PR arsenal. And in true radio craft style, you'll have to keep listening to find out what it means. And that won't be difficult, as we have an extra special guest on this episode, the iconic Aussie author and journo Trent Dalton. He's arguably Australia's top profile writer. He's won more awards than we can list. We could go on and on, but to cut a long story short, Joe and I are major fans and right now we're trying really hard to play it cool. Just to put that in perspective, I pinned one of Trent's Weekend Oz features to my inspo cork board a couple of years ago and I still can't bring myself to pull it down. Well, Trent's debut novel, Boy Swallows Universe, and recently released second novel, All Our Shimmering Skies, seem destined to become classics and probably mandatory school reading. He certainly got a wonderful turn of phrase and knows how to tell a great story. But his real talent, we think, is finding the magic in the everyday. Welcome to its PR darlings, Trent Dalton. Oh, thank you so much, you two. It's, um, it's a real honour to be here and to be talking to you guys. And thank you so much for being so generous with your time. We have so many questions for you, but let's start with the ingredients that you look for in a story. Where do your weekend Oz stories come from, from the inception? Do they come from your own ideas, your editor? Do PR and comms people ever influence your choice of yarn? Uh, well, um, yeah, great, great question. Like, first off, like the first thing I'm looking for is um, is is this a story that will sustain the reader across 4,000 words? Will it have enough peaks and valleys in a narrative sense, just the same way we look at fiction narratives or any kind of, you know, movie storytelling, long-form Netflix storytelling? I absolutely approach it with the same way. Um, 
uh, a 4,000 word magazine piece unfolds. So that's what I'm looking for. Does it have enough drama or enough humor or enough kind of, um, yeah, hills and valleys to, to take them through? So that's the first thing. But, and then, or um, is there at the heart of it some sort of, you know, literally a hero? Who's the hero? Who's the villain? Um, What are the positive and negative forces at play in this story? You know, all stories, rely on conflict um a lot of the time you know if um and conflict doesn't have to come in you know doesn't have to be Darth Vader it can be you know you're writing a story about a mountaineer well the villain suddenly becomes the mountain he's climbing or you're writing a story about a woman um fighting um to get her son um recognized in the disability sector well the villain is the powers that be and you know so you're just sort of constantly thinking in those sort of ways um my editor christine midapp on the weekend australian magazine has the best ideas the best stories i write are her ideas um the the story that i probably got most out of journalistically um in 2020 um the uh, I went down to cover the Black Summer bushfires, which was essentially my editor calling up and going, hey, Trent, I know you're in Brisbane. Um, it's kind of because you're an outsider um, and you're not down in that area of New South Wales and Victoria that's being afflicted. I think it might be really good to just send you down because um, you'll just look at it like you always do with just, you know, fresh eyes. And, and I like love doing that kind of thing. And so she just said, hop I, I love that one too. Oh. It was Thank yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. Thank the you. Hope, the hope with the green shoots coming through and all oh. the blackness. It was, oh, it was yeah. so poetic, right? It was so um, it yeah. was so um, kind of deep in a kind of lyrical kind of sense. And so, yeah. So that's her just going, "Hey, I want you to just grab a hire car, drive from Batemans Bay down to Malakuta, and tell us what you see." And they're they're sometimes my favourite stories. And I come up with a lot. My wife and I come up with stories together and then I might be just talking to someone and the, the, sometimes the talking to someone at a party type thing are really good because you know no one else has that story. So you just – someone gives you an elbow and goes, hey, you wouldn't believe what I saw the other day and or you wouldn't believe what's happening at my work and boom, you've got this sort of – you've got, you know, the all-important scoop there. And then, and then you know, on the, on the, the PR side of things, which I know you guys are interested in, I mean, that's – that's something I've um, leaned on since I was, particularly when my first job, right, like year 2000, I worked for this magazine called Brisbane News, a colour magazine. And it was it was all the PR people who helped me out because um, I was just completely nobody. And, um, and, uh, and it was always people, I mean, PR people from film companies and PR people from music publishing companies and... You know, all sorts of places, as you know, like there's the, you know, and just people who have, you know, businesses where some person's got a story to tell and they've gone through a PR company to tell it. I always found that really handy to have a sort of relationship with someone who would just throw me a bone. You know what I mean? Just throw me a bone because no one knew <laughs> me. No one wanted to talk to me. Um, and, um, and it was often times, which is why I'm, I'm always been grateful and kind of why I'm doing this podcast, honestly, like it's like, and, and Greer, you were so supportive, um, of, of my sort of writing and sort of career and, and it's never been lost on me. And so I thank you so much for that. And, but, um, yeah, no, and that's absolutely true. And, and, uh, but so I've always been, um, of the mind whenever any PR place calls me up, now and it can be tricky, right? I'm such a, oh, I'm terrible because I have this can't say no problem, right? And and I, f- I find the funny, the funniest thing for me is that P- 
PR person will call up and they'll say, and so and to, to answer your thing, I'm totally open to the PR company or the person coming at me from the pitch, man. Yeah. Why wouldn't you be? You'd be nuts to be a journo and not be open to it because let me tell you, um, because of PR pitches, I've interviewed just, I mean, I'm just thinking in recent times, um, Daniel Ricardo, I remember, was a sort of a fox pitch. Um, uh, uh, Barry Humphreys was a pitch. Um, uh, Bob Hawke was a pitch. You know what I mean? And th- these yeah. are these are all massive interviews in my life that came through PR. And so you'd be an idiot to sort of go, oh, I'm not talking to that person because it's come through PR. It's just, one, it's the way of life, but two, it's kind of, it, oh, and don't even get me started going back on Brisbane News. It was it was PR people who got me an interview with Anthony Hopkins, Matt Damon, Heath Ledger, and those type of stories. Eric Banner, those sort of stories were the ones that got noticed by the people uh, who hired me for my dream type journalism jobs. You know, where I could go explore social justice issues and all that sort of stuff. So it's sort of it. One thing always leads to another, and um, yeah. So I'm always open to the pitch, the PR pitch. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, don't let me ramble. I'm I'm, I'm a, I'm a classic rambler. So, We're having yeah. a happy listen. It's all good. Um, you know what we both really loved was that one with the six different people living on the same street. Oh yeah, and, yeah. And it, and it really highlighted that you know everyone has a story, and if you're willing oh. to find the time, you'll find it. You know. Oh yeah. Tell us a bit more about how you got the idea to do that series and why was it Sunny Avenue in Wavell Heights of all places? Yeah, yeah. Well, that was that was just pure um, journalism kind of – I tell you this thing, you, that that Boyswell's Universe book I wrote, it 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 grew legs, right, and it, and it went to places I couldn't have possibly imagined and, and, and it messed with my head a little bit. Like I, I was getting lost – in that world a bit too much and, you know, getting on social media and I'd look at any bloody kind message that anyone said and I'd be like, I love you, thank you so much because that book, I mean, let me tell you, like it's so personal and so deep and important to me, that book. And so I was just sort of a bit too lost in it. And uh, But then really good things happened to it and it went to really, really big high places and my head went with it, you know, and so I, I really, when I had... And then it came time I'd finished writing my second book, All Our Shimmering Skies, and I just knew I needed to bring myself back down to earth. Like just not like I'd become this complete douchebag but or anything or, you know, and but just journalism and that kind of street pavement, pounding the pavement journalism is so good for the soul. Like it's just so good to remind you about humanity and 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 what you're trying to achieve like in life, in my writing and stuff. And, and I just... I, I, I'd always wanted to do that story and then I would, oh, look, you know, there's, there's, it was multifaceted. I wanted to be able to smash out for my editor, Christine. I wanted to be able to give her like six stories quickly because I remember she had asked me like, do you have any summer things we might be able to – summer is a tough time in magazine world because oftentimes magazines um, have layout like a break over Christmas and then it's hard to sort of get the machine going again and get the rhythm yeah. and the freight train moving again to come back into the new year. And yeah. and Christine sort of, I know that from having worked with her for so long, I'm like, well, all right, here's the thing. I know because I'd been away a bit on annual, like sort of my long service leave and stuff, riding all Astronomy Skies, I owed her, you know, a big favour and I just wanted to really go, all right, well, I'm going to give you six stories to run for the next six weeks straight. And um, and then I thought, how do I do that? And then and then I was struck with this idea of what about a street anywhere in Brisbane um, 
and and we look at it as though it's a matrix of storytelling where where we find all the neighbors in this street and we try and unpack how maybe those stories feed into themselves but also exactly what you guys just said it's like um how do we show people that every single person has a story to tell. I genuinely, genuinely believe that. I think that I've built a career out of that notion, but it's, but it's, um, it's so true. And it, and it's just how long are you willing to sit in that person's living room and, and get that story? And that's something I, I kind of have always loved doing, which is, um, which is sitting in Eat someone's cake. living room. Totally right. Eat yeah. the cake, drink Eat the wine, cake. drink, the, <laughs> drink the cordial, whatever they're offering you. Right. That's so true. That's so well yeah. said. Yeah. Just go for it. And, and that was really um, important. That's where that story came from. And then it it, it was Sunny Avenue because I knew I, I went to an area where I wanted it. I didn't want it to be defined by its area. So, for example, if I had chosen a suburb like Ascot, then well, everyone's just going to go, oh well, you're just you're just writing about affluent people who have a certain circumstance in life, or or I didn't want to just write about Logan and and write about people who are working class and maybe battlers or you know. So I had to find that kind of somewhere in between where. You might have, um, you know, pretty well-off people living among people who are renters, and indeed, on that street, there are housing commission homes that that share the street with um, three-story sort of almost mansions. So it's quite an amazing street. But also, the reason this street, Sunny Avenue, struck me was just the name. I thought, well, that's that's what we've got to call it. It's got to be called Sunny Avenue, oh, and um, you know, and that can be the series. And it, and it was like seriously, so so funny that a name can define kind of thing because. Because what I was trying to get at was, okay, the streets even the streets called Sunny Avenue, but I bet it's not sunny all the time, just like life. And uh, but I bet it is. I bet it, there is heaps of light in this street, but I bet you there's darkness as well. And and of course, then you just um, you know you park your car, and, and it's like a very quiet oh, midday, and then you just go knock on like forty doors in Sunny Avenue and try and explain yourself and pray that people um, get where you're coming from. And, um, and of course, the first person who really um, let me in, literally inside her house, was this incredible uh, woman, Tracy, who, Tracy Gregg, who um, she, she leaned out her window, I knocked, and then I went back down and sort of, you know, to in a, like sort of wave at her from the driveway, not sort of to be too imposing and stuff. She leans out the window. She's like, oh, my God what are you doing here? And then she goes, come inside. She goes, come inside right now. Come inside. And then she goes, look at this. And she points on her bench and, and she's just finished reading Boyce Weller's Universe. And it was sort of some, it was sort of weird. So it was sort of like, she's like, and she's like, what are you doing? And she's like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do your story. And it all came from her. So I have Tracy to thank big time. She's an incredible woman. And, and, what I loved about that story is that she became this kind of, you know, mini kind of hero to a lot of people, um, who read that piece because she's just this ordinary mum who has all these wonderful insights and philosophies and ambitions and 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 she's come across her own peaks and valleys and so many people wrote in to just say I love that woman so much and she's oh. me and anyway and that that's just gold journalism for me when you just you're connecting like that and um yeah so yeah thank you for highlighting that, was, that piece I loved that, it yeah that was the one I cried through that one um, <laughs> yeah. are there any, yeah. is there any um, sort of techniques that you use to get people to really open up to you the way they do because we I always think like the power of the pause is really good people need to fill oh. the space Oh, that's so well said. Totally. Um, don't, you know, um, okay, listen to this. Like, it's like, that. that's power. You feel that silence? Like, that silence is sort of, you start to slow it down. And I do it myself in an interview, you know, just, and someone starts crying or something, don't, don't feel the need to rush over and pat them on the, they just need to just weep, get it out, 
process their thoughts. You just and you just constantly just hey, it's all about time and slowing things down. I mean, you got to remember that you know the only other place aside from journalism where you get to talk about your own life for two hours is a paid scenario to a psychologist, and <laughs> and you know, you know, we're coming in there with no, we're not even trying to, we're not we're not there to sort of help but we're just here to tell a story you know and and i think that is a very powerful sort of and cathartic thing that can happen sometimes so i so that yeah the first thing i do is try and be extremely patient um and um and but but seriously you know i have this huge thing about enthusiasm um always no matter what you're doing like i mean this is just everything enthusiasm's you know my my big my, my big word um is is enthusiasm and it's it's this um sense that everything you approach the minute you walk out your door or even the minute you wake up. I mean, the way you greet your kids in the morning or the way you hopefully greet your wife and your husband and whatever, you know, the way you view a bird flying through the sky. I know this sounds cheesy, but the way you listen to the Beatles on the radio, the way you hear things, the way you, everything should be done with enthusiasm. And so every, you know, and, and well in journalism and I'm sure PR would be exactly the same. I mean, absolutely probably even then some God, you, you guys must need enthusiasm. Some days, you know, to just keep making those calls or whatever, I couldn't imagine. But uh, you know, the enthusiasm is so powerful, and 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 it gets recognised. People really, people like it when you're enthusiastic around them, you know. And and um, so I try and be just like if if someone's saying something, I'm just like I'm right there, like I am like the best listener in the world, and and uh, and and I'm just. And I'm giving these nonverbal kind of, you know, I'm, my eyes are wide, my mouth's open, you know, I'm just like, keep talking, I'm nodding furiously, you know, I'm just like, you know, just actively listening, you know, and that, that's the other key thing is like journos aren't, you know, all journal, all journalism is, is, is just good listening and, and it really is. It's just how much are you willing to hear the things of their elements of their story that you're going to be able to um, expand that story in a powerful way. And so these people are opening the windows, right? These windows, those old school windows we had in our primary schools in Brisbane. It was like, you know, those, you, they're hard to open and they, they always used to get stuck and you'd just have to refat them and you're just pushing them up and up and up. And then when they let you open, you know, that's that's it. You just got to find those places where the window's opening up. And, and then, you know, by the end, you've just got that window wide open and the breeze is blowing and it's all just going beautifully because suddenly they trust you and, um you know, and so it's um, and it's beautiful. But then, of course, it's your responsibility as the journal and as the writer to not ruin that trust and not and not uh, make them vomit um, the next Saturday morning, three weeks um, from that moment, that beautiful moment in the living room when they finally read the story and they go, "Oh man, I wish that guy never came into my life." You know, so it's sort of like you've got to leave them better than how you found them, hopefully. And so that's a very, very tricky business. And, um, and it's one that, um, I often lose sleep at night over. Yeah. So forgive the background noise. That's just, um, my kids making toast and stuff. So it's, um, it's, it's you know, holiday time. Yeah. yeah, we yeah. Understand. Cool. Um, in that way, Trent, like I sometimes look at what you've done and I think, wow, um, that would be an amazing story to give one of our clients for their, um, website about us, <laughs> you know, like your stories are so beautiful. Um, and most journalists would never be able to take the time to connect in that way. Um, as PR people, we're often right at the coalface, so not quite doing the door knock on um, Sunny Ave, but it's before they've, they've ever told their story. So they can be quite nervous and um, 
not ready to speak. Yeah. And I feel like because you go there with your journalism at right at that moment as well, um, where they're not necessarily always prepped and ready to go, um, that feeling of responsibility that you have to capture their story. Oh, uh, and 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 you, I would imagine for you guys, it's very tricky because you are you are so right. You are at the coalface, and you're pretty well the gatekeeper of. If that person has told you, you've got to be very judicious about what you then relay. If they tell you, I would imagine so many times telling you something pretty deep and dark, and then you then are in that position of maybe offering that to the journal who's just going to jump all over it, right? They're, and they're going to they're going to highlight it, you know, and they're going to put it up in lights, you know. So it's sort of like, yeah, it's tricky what you then, what you take and then what you sort of relay and give. And it's very, yeah, I, that's very interesting. And I remember a few times working with um, people and it's just the sort of way of life these days. You want to, you know, so, oh, sometimes a couple of really good stories have come to me through people who are doing, um, looking after the hospitals around Brisbane and stuff and, you know, really intense kind of stories. And you just can't imagine what they're seeing on that first um, you know, coalface kind of chat where we're going, look, we're doing this thing because, you know, oftentimes it can be of, you know, maybe promoting a good cause or something, but that story's got such darkness around it that it, that is the journal will hopefully want to tell to promote in order to promote the good cause. So it's you guys who have the tricky scenario of going, how much do I dig into this person's life and then say to the journal, they can then talk about. And so, yeah, no, it's a tricky sort of, well, definitely, and um, yeah, and, I, um, and we're taking that phone call on Saturday when you when they don't like your story. Oh, you are. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, that's actually that's that's very true. That's very true. I've I've done a couple of yarns where I've had phone calls from the PR people who's who've organised the thing with the very powerful person, and I'm talking often millionaire type person, and that's when it comes. It's often. It's often people like that who might engage you guys and uh, and then, yeah, I've taken mm. some horrific calls from people who are like, thanks, mate, I'm going to lose, my, um, <laughs> lose yeah. my client because of you. And I'm like, well, that's the tricky oh. thing for you guys is that, yeah. well, it, it, here's the fine, that's just the fine line about the whole thing. It's just that the journo is trying to do their thing in truth and kind of do it the way that hopefully, well, ultimately, I, you know, I'm coming from the point of view of serve the reader, you know, first and foremost, serve and, the reader. And- you know, and, and, and to right. tell that story, yeah. Sorry. And yeah. Well, no, I was just going to say, for us, it's also about like respecting what you're doing as a journalist too. Yeah, wanna, yeah, you know, right, have, yeah. We can give you all the bits to the story, but we have to trust you to do what, you know, do the story to the best of your ability. You can pull in whoever extra people you want to talk to. You know, we have to allow the journalist to do that as well. So it is kind yeah, of yeah, tricky yeah. Oh, for sure, yeah. for sure. Not, no, not that, that's be, it. Not to be controlling either, you know, yeah. it's – have to actually really have that relationship of trust and we also will let our client know once it's gone we don't have control so we're oh, all in this that's control. that's cool yeah see that that's yeah. that's it it's just that um i think it's about that openness and tr- yeah it's all about control and look the best people i've worked with are the ones who go i trust you trent i know i didn't you know i wouldn't have called you if i feel like you're going to naturally just intently do a hatchet job on this person um but um I, I, you know, they'll say, look, can you just do me a favor in this area? Maybe don't ask him about this because he's genuinely asked us that's deep and personal to him. Like it'll, it'll, it's actually hurtful to him if you bring this up. And I'm like, all right, point taken. Um, or it'll hurt his family. All right, point taken. Um, but this, 
go there, go there. You know what I mean? I'll go, all right, I'll try and go here. And, and you're, and I'm always trying to, you know, you're trying to go bigger and, and anyway, but, but the best people are the ones, the worst, let, let me tell you the worst are, are the ones that, um, desperate to sit in on the interview. And often, oftentimes it's, it's really young, ambitious, um, gung ho, um, PR people I've, I've noticed that are just so overly protective of the person. And usually it's so hilarious. And I've found it with like the bigger, the, the star or the person or the politician or the whoever it is, you know, and I'm, and, and I, you know, there, there, there are, there are sort of, let's lump them. I don't know. Minders is a terrible word, but I sort of look at it sometimes as the people who are minding, minding, looking after them, you know? And so, and that, that, that comes in every field, sport, politics, music, film, you know, it's like they're, they're everyone has them now and it's just the way of the world yeah. and you've got to you've got to it's like the gatekeeper at the um if you're going to see a specialist and you've got the receptionist <laughs> totally <laughs> totally it's just the way of you know look look let me tell you the best the best journalistic scenarios are the person who just calls up and goes um oh you might know me I've been in politics for 50 years I've got my story to tell and and they're, they're just all right I'll meet you at this cafe at 9 a.m I'm there you know but that just doesn't happen much, you know. And so you need you need to know that it's going to happen. That they're going to have these gatekeepers, and then. But the the, the worst are the ones who insist on um, going like Trent, um, and they, or they don't even say it. They just subtly like sit down with the subject as you're having your time together, and and then you don't want to have to do the awkward like um yeah excuse me do you mind if I just um do this just one-on-one with this person and 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 I've, I've you know it's funny how many times you have to say that where it's like I mean I think most people get it and go yeah of course because a conversation can only work you know it's very hard to have a three-way conversation even if that person isn't saying a word it's still that the, the very presence of the person is saying a lot and so um but but the funniest thing is the higher and I've often found the bigger and the more important the person um just the whole totally savvy they are they that they, they don't need the protection that that we're all thinking yeah. they might need and and it's really it's really interesting where um you know i'll even say to someone sometimes look now i know this is tricky um what i'm about to ask and they're like oh yeah i knew you were gonna ask it go ahead you know and so it's sort of sometimes we we overthink these things and um but i understand the need for people to do their jobs and totally you know make sure you know that their that their people don't sort of walk away with a bad taste in their mouth but yeah man it's so tricky but absolutely no absolutely and and to be honest sometimes i'll end up doing a story where there's another pr person involved and um <laughs> if they're too controlling around you know me and my client or what we're trying to do I find that process is is quite difficult because it becomes something else to manage instead of just telling the story and giving wow. the client a platform to to speak. So wow. yeah, we, we, I've experienced it as well. <laughs> oh, it's so interesting, and and sometimes sometimes it, you know to be on, and it works in reverse too. I did a piece with Mick Fanning, um, and and I he that. yeah he I loved I loved catching up with him. I just mm. know for for sure that he was probably. I don't know. I've got the sense maybe he's been burned in the past or something. I, I got the sense that he was happy that the, there was just one. This the woman who organised it all, and she was from a PR company, and she she didn't sit, you know, like she she was a far, far away. From, she she had the courtesy and you know the kindness to just like let us do our thing. But I got the sense from Mick that he felt just comfortable that she was there, just in case he could nod to her and just go, "This guy's a dick. Um, pull me out of this." You know what I mean? And and so there is an element there that it sort of makes them comfortable as well. So 
So, yeah, I've learned over the years, it's just this fine line where you just go, oh, yeah, cool. If it makes you comfortable that she's there because she's been with you the whole way. And I know how it works. You know, I've done book tours with, you know, and you do look at these people and you go, hey, save me. I'm dying. I'm dying here. <laughs> you know, and uh, so I get it, you know, and so it's, um, yeah, it, it's, it's, yeah, there's so many facets to it. Yeah, that's cool. Um, And so... The Boy Swallows Universe, a seamless blend of fact and fiction. This is always something that interests me because even with my own writing, sometimes I'll do a bit of creative writing on the side and I find it because I'm grounded in the journalism originally, I find it quite difficult sometimes when you're doing a bit of fact and then a bit of fiction and you're blending it together and it's almost this feeling like you're lying. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, so yeah. I don't know if you get what I'm saying, but as a journo, how did you free yourself up to write particularly that blurred fact fiction? Is it is there more friction in fiction or <laughs> is, is, it, is there more? I don't know if you understand what I'm saying. No, I'm hearing you. I'm hearing you. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, far out. I mean, I spent the entire year of 2018 thinking about that very thing. So, um, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, it It is a very interesting thing where... I had this story inside me, you know, and yeah, my, you know, my 1980s was a very interesting decade for me and and my, you know, my mum fell in love with this dangerously successful heroin dealer and we moved to the fringes of Brisbane and, you know, my brothers and I found a secret room beneath that guy's house and inside that room was a rotary dial red telephone that my brothers and I always wondered who the hell was on the other end of that line and and all of these these things, like I bottled all this stuff up and there was all sorts of you know, interesting dark things that happened from that world and all sorts of interesting, wondrous, beautiful, life-changing, life-making things that happened to me. And I always wanted to put them in a book, but I didn't want to write a memoir, some sort of misery memoir that kind of was like, oh, woe is me, because it wasn't woe is me at all. That life was intensely beautiful and fun and wondrous with just the occasional night of horror, you know, and, uh, um, but, but, um, I, I knew there was something powerful there, um, but here's the thing: the the true story, um, it doesn't have an exciting ending. It just didn't have an exciting ending. It, um, the true story mm-hmm. is that um, you know I meet the love of my life, um, and I get a job at Brisbane News, and then I get a job at the <laughs> Courier Mail, um, and then I become a dad and raise two kids in middle class Brisbane, and. Uh, <laughs> And it just, it just, um, that's cool. That's like a really happy ending for me in real life. But um, yeah, I, I, I needed to take these characters to, to places that um, were more interesting than sort of essentially my real life went to. And so, and and then also, there was a benefit in in catching it in kind of fiction um, because hopefully, um, you know, I just, I, I was worried about hurting people, and and I was genuinely worried about. I mean, even though, and it was silly to even think that I would still save myself from that because even if it is a work of fiction, people will read things into it, you know, anyway. So you're sort of on a hiding to nothing anyway. But um, but I did find it so much more, I, th- I think it would have been so much harder to write if it was a misery memoir. And so what happened was I developed this kid who's this sort of avatar of me, Eli Bell, and each night um, I'd get home from work and my day job nine to five and then I'd from about eight till 10 at night, I'd go downstairs into the kids' rumpus room and um, and I'd just slip into the shoes, the, literally the Dunlop volleys of this, um, not literally, figur- figuratively, sorry, <laughs> um, uh, of this kid named Eli Bell and slip into his Dunlop volleys and 
and sort of step into his world, who's kind of just me at 12. Like he's just me. But um, but it was so much easier because he was this fiction me. He could do he he did all the things that I wanted to do at twelve, you know what I mean, and uh, and so he goes on that wild adventure. Whereas, you know, I had to life pulled me up from doing those things and just circumstance and practicality. I couldn't do all the wild things that Eli does, and so um, I found it really thrilling. The whole sort of then basically you so you get through all writing the hard stuff, and then by the time like it's 50-50 true and, you know, it's about – it really is. Like it really is. Like and there's characters in there that, are, that anyone who knows them just go, oh, wow, wow, you didn't hold back there or, oh, wow, that's them 100%. And uh, But then but then the joy of the back end of the book was I could I could take this kid on this great sort of um, rollicking ride and kind of um, bring in proper storytelling and stuff, which was – but here's the thing. You do the fiction writing and then you're trying to actually – you actually find yourself reaching a, a higher truth that that you wouldn't have been, even been able to reach if you were telling one hundred percent facts. So it's really quite interesting, and and I learned the of course the higher truth that wouldn't have been in the misery memoir was that love conquers all, hope is everything. Um, you know, and it's the things that aren't in the blurb of that book. And so people read the blurb on that book and go, oh, it's kid growing up in nineteen eighties Brisbane, surrounded by um, drug dealing and prisoners and ex-cons and it doesn't say yeah this is a owed utterly a book about um the ways in which family and love can help help you survive everything so um yeah so it's so that's the truth though that, that i reached through fiction but um yeah so it was just such a fascinating process but yeah it's it's tricky business that's for sure it's um you know and i and i still you know I, yeah look and my second book so there's so much of me in that book, even though it's this wild adventure, sort of Wizard of Oz-like storytelling, but it's so just a metaphor for me growing up, not in the 1980s this time, but the 1990s. And um, and it's one big metaphor for that. And and it's like all of those things that Molly the hero encounters in that story and all the villains, well, they're all just amalgams of, of, of Australian men that I've known and men that I've met. And, you know, so it's sort of really I, I have to write from those places. But but I, but I do find it really freeing if you feel as though you don't have to just be fully kind of exposed, which I kind of often am in my journalism. Like in journalism, you have to be. It's like, all right, I'm writing about myself. All right, it's a bit icky, but I'll go there, you know. And so, yeah, so it's um, it's funny. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting mix. I'm sure you've just inspired so many um, young writers just in what you've said now, but I emailed you a couple of lines. I don't know if you've got it. Oh, there. Yeah, yeah, I've got it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, don't go away because award-winning journalist and author Trent Dalton is about to read from his latest book, All Our Shimmering Skies. There's a bit of bullshit in this story, but um, but take the power of it, you know, You'll hear his thoughts on what's next for Australian media and PR. We're going to see a lot in the future of journalism and and what you guys do is is we're going to see that kind of more independent kind of avenues of career. You know, you're just doing your thing from your your lounge room. That's just going to be the way of the world. Plus find out, who is Alice? Any success of Boyswellers Universe um, and all our Shrimming Skies, you know, it's it's just, I just owe to her. I mean, it's, it's just quite simply a fact. This is It's PR Darlings and we're speaking with Trent Dalton. So I'm sure you've just inspired so many um, young writers just in what you've said now, but 
I emailed you a couple of lines. I don't know if you've got it. Oh, there, yeah, yeah, I've got I it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe get you to read out, if that's okay, from um, your latest novel, All Our Shimmer in Skies. Yeah, this is from uh, the, there's a wonderful, one of my favorite characters is this character called Yukio Miki in the book. And he's a Japanese World War II fighter pilot who literally falls from the sky and, um, and lands in the narrative. Um, and our hero, Molly Hook is sort of running from the bombing of Darwin. She's going in search of this sorcerer that she's built up in her head who she believes might kind of remove the curse that um, has been she's, she believes has been put on her family. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, she might have every right to think that Yukio Miki is going to be the greatest enemy um, because he's, you know, represents the Japanese empire. Um, but, uh, what if he turns out to be the best friend, um, she's ever met? And, uh, and, and this is just a little bit where, uh, Yukio's talking to his father about, um, I think he's, sorry, his uncle, um, about, about, uh, the power of storytelling and, and, uh, and his uncle says this, he's about to tell him a story and he says these lines for this story to reach your heart, son. Oh, it's his father. Yeah, sorry. She always his father. For this story to reach your heart, son, you may need to swallow it down with a sprinkling of salt from the shores of the inland sea. You should write the facts only on tissue paper, but you should carve its meaning in stone. Yeah, I love that. He's, what he's saying is he's saying, um, yeah, the story's, you know, there's a bit of bullshit in this story, but um, but take the power of it. You know, don't don't lose sight of of what its meaning is and and I love that aspect of storytelling and and oh man don't even get me started on that I mean people that I was raised by were the greatest storytellers on earth I'm talking pub storytellers and there's no <laughs> better storyteller than a bloke at the Brighton pub where and he's got a pot of forex and I'm eating from salt and vinegar chips and that bloke's just telling me a story and even as a kid I knew that there's a bit of bullshit in that story but the power of it always stayed with me and I never forgot those stories. And 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 that's what Oshiro's telling Yukio. He's like, he's just like, Yeah, okay, take it with a grain of salt, but uh, but you can carve its meaning in stone. And and I love that, you know, like that's the let's that's books. I mean, that's like every great book we read, you know, we finish it and we go, I'm changed. My life has changed. And and I, I could carve the meaning of that book to me in stone, you know, because even though it was a wild fictional adventure, man, it's meaning and the and the the chills down my spine were as true as anything I've ever felt. Yeah, I do love that. And your writing, it strikes me more as truthful than factual. You're in that enviable position to write quite freely. Most journos in a newsroom wouldn't be able to invest as much time reporting on the bushfire aftermath and doing all the amazing things that you do. Yeah, true, true, but yeah. You do always cast your subjects in a, such a flattering light. Yeah, very, yeah. Very kind. You see them with such paper. <laughs> yeah, that's so sweet. I mean, yeah, it, it's um, it's really sweet you say that. I, I do try and do that and that, that's all That's all a legacy of my past though, like of, of looking at rogues and, and particularly men with massive demons inside them but having to overlook those things, you know, having to overlook them to to um, find the man that you need to love, you know, and, and like, I mean, that's just the story of my life. Like that's just a really powerful notion to me, you know, and a kid must find love wherever he can get it and um, and and in order to do that, you probably will overlook things, um, sometimes to your detriment. You know, that that is a thing that my wife hates in me, you know, at 41 as a dad, 
you know, my wife's always just going, man, you should not have given that person your time of day. That person's an a-hole. Like, you know, that person didn't deserve your kindness. And, and, uh, and, you know, I'm always getting myself in trouble because of that notion. And, and in terms of my journalism, I know, um, you know, I, uh, oftentimes I've had really great conversations with really great journos like Headley Thomas and Matthew Condon and and they'll read a piece I've written and they'll go, God, gee, Trent, um, uh, I think there's another sort of side of that guy's story that you're not telling and 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 those hardcore journos can see it. But it's to, it's to, it's a fault in my journalism. I, sh- I should be – and I try to all, at all times but it's just sometimes I'm guilty of – of just looking at the lighter side of life and optimistically at, at human beings. I mean, I remember once and when it went too far, hey, this was like I was writing for Q Weekend magazine on the Korea Mail, like it was about 15 years ago or something, and I interviewed a, um, a child pornographer and and it messed with my head because I was trying to find the humanity in a man like that and, um, and mm. I don't think he deserved it, you know, he didn't. I don't think he had human. I don't. I don't know. I, I doubt whether he did have the human. I, I don't know. I, I was trying to. I, I thought. I, I sensed that he was deeply messed up in his head, and deeply ashamed and and regretful and all that. But anyway, I you know I was a father of two girls, and it, and it just messed with me. And I was just. And it was a real cautionary tale to myself to just go, Nah, man, you need to draw the line at some point. And, and not everyone deserves your four hours in a living room. You know, just it's just a fact. You know. And it's like, um, you know, it's 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 like, does Martin Bryant deserve a four-hour chat? You know, does bloody Charles Manson deserve a four-hour chat? You know, sometimes no. You know, it's just like, why do we give our time to these people? And uh, you know, so it's sort of like that was very interesting life lessons for me. And uh, and it's funny how it bleeds into life though on my daily basis. Like I have trouble saying no. I have um, I've got all these issues with like. Yeah, it's it's weird. It's weird. It's like it's sort of yeah. It's it's but trying to see the good things and try and go yeah no that, no, that, that that's good. That's a good thing to do. And all right, well that person's got this goodness in them. I'm going to try and wrench it out of them. And I'm pr- I'm hoping I'm praying that they'll be good. I'm going make this story uh, give me a happy ending. Okay, you know anyway. So yeah. Well, because because news, which is what you started writing to begin with, you know, can be really mm. quite cut mm. and dried. I mean, it's all fact, isn't it? Like you really aren't. Yeah. Supposed- putting yeah. your opinion, opinion or colour into oh, for sure. And, yeah. I, and like, but how did you manage to convince your editors to really allow you to branch out into that trademark style of yours, which is really that beautiful feature style that's almost kind of poetry, really? Yeah, you've just got to put the, you've just got to, sh- you've, only one way to do it is to show them, is to show them. And, and you know what, they, they listen to letters, they listen to the letters from the public and, and, you know, and the minute, the first time you write a piece, you know, well, I'll tell you where it started for me, really. I, I, I wrote this piece. It was ridiculous. It was just, and it involved me just living a life um, in which I pretended it was the year I was born. So it was like um, I'm born in 1979 and so I went and like live, I was living in the 70s for a week basically and uh, and I wore a bloody safari suit to work and I drove this <laughs> I took my wife to the um, a method actor. <laughs> total method. Oh man, total method. Like, oh, don't even get me started. I was. That's so funny you say that. Like, method yeah. was my thing journalistically for yeah. quite a time. I swear to God, I'd do that. Like, it was real Gonzo sort of like, and that's all. That's all Gonzo. It's method. Like, you're just going method. Like, you just. <laughs> I'm embodying this, and so I did a story on goths. All right, I'll go. I'll go become a goth for, for a week. That was my oh. shtick. 
for a while there. I haven't done that in a while, but that, but I used to love that too. Or I, I did a store on the homeless, so I went homeless for a week. You know what I mean? It was just like, and that was, that was really great way because there was this sort of thing of like, okay, I'm going to see things through these eyes, and then that becomes a powerful way to to write your story. But um, that only comes from when you you need permission from your editors, and it only comes from people. Um, well, people like you guys who sort of then write in and go, hey, well done, good yarn, good yarn, and that feedback flows back to the powers that be and they go, all right, what do you got next? And so suddenly you're off, you know, and and that's probably been the case of my, you know, fortunately enough where it's like they have a little bit of faith and don't get me wrong, I screw up all the time. Like I've come up with ideas that are just total nonsense. I remember writing <laughs> I wrote a 4,000-word feature for Christine um, where I said, I'm, I'm going to document I'm going to document an um, uh, ordinary Brisbane family um, as if I'm David Attenborough or not even David Attenborough, like a more <laughs> hardcore sort of um, anthropologist, right? And, and, and the whole piece, I did, I did eventually, I spent a week with this family, right? And, uh, and I went inside their house for so long and I was just sitting in the corner of their living room like document. <laughs> Like seriously, with a notepad, and just noting. Like the kid would come home from school, "Mum, um, yeah, we won in netball." I'd write, like, um, "Yeah, Sally won netball, forty-one to forty. And then like, oh, the point where they were like going to the, they were going to the bedroom. The, the mum and dad, they'd put the kids good night, and they they went to the bedroom. And I'm like, "Can I just follow you guys in?" And I'll sit in the corner. And the dad was just like, "Go home, get out of here." Anyway, that 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 that. that that piece I wrote in this sort of style, I wrote it like a total scientific text. So I was like, um, father, father, Henry um, puts right arm around wife. It was like, it, it was ridiculous. And I wrote 4,000 words like that. And my editor sent it back to me just going, trans. Read it. Do you yeah. still have it? Oh, I, I know. I'll have to. I'll have to send you. I wonder if I, I do that. That that first draft of that. Yeah, and so that was a complete. 4,000 word rewrite and uh, it turned out to be quite a nice piece just written in my normal kind of whatever but uh, yeah and anyway so you can get ahead of yourself and you can you can start thinking your ideas are just genius and you always need those people around you to just bring you back down to earth and go that's good that one's crap that's good uh let's 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 cook that one in the oven for a bit longer you know so it's all yeah it's always you you need that mate well you just got to trust in the smarter people around you and i i yeah that that christine midapp has for about 15 years of my life been the smartest person in the room every day and uh and so it's really cool to have people like that you know that's the power that's the other great lesson is just trust the intelligent people around you and just and let them you know um put you on a pedestal you know yeah, and the importance of actual training to be a journalist in the newsroom. Which oh yeah, yeah, is lost if you're a um, you know, at home YouTuber <laughs> on your own. You don't have that. Oh man, that's such a good point, and and we're going to see a lot in the future of journalism, and and what you guys do is, is we're going to see that kind of more independent kind of avenues of career you know you're just doing your thing from your your lounge room and that's just going to be the way of the world and you're so right like I learned so much about writing I'm talking about writing that went into my novels you know from from people just tapping me on the shoulder and just going hey you know um let me just tell you something I mean man my wife like the woman I married told me where to put apostrophes. Like I just didn't know. I was just this idiot. And then she just took the time one afternoon and just go, I'm sick of reading this copy of yours with these ridiculous apostrophes all over the place. And, (laughs) 
you know, I mean, it's just and just no one's taking the time to do that. No one in a in a newsroom just because that's just the way of things, and and that's um that's tough, you know. Yeah, so yeah, absolutely, take that wisdom wherever you can get it. So was it tough um, for you, uh, Trent, to transition to becoming the story? Having spent much of your career interviewing others, what was it like to become the interviewee? Oh, man. What what did your own interviewees teach you about being good talent? Oh, that's a great, great question. It was so funny. My thing, my danger is, is saving me from myself. Like I needed someone to save me from myself because of... Coming from a journo background, I, I would I would try and almost write the story for the journo, like or, or like feed them the lines where I go, oh, you're gonna love this, you're gonna, you know, you know, here's here's a good lead, or here, you know, whatever. It was just ridiculous, yeah. and, and it's just like, shut up. They don't need to know every dark secret of my life, but I wanted to give it to them, and 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 the biggest learning curve for me was just like, shut up, man. If you don't have to say the thing that you feel uncomfortable about. <laughs> you just don't have to say it. You don't have to let it come out of your freaking stupid <laughs> mouth. And that was a really um that was a really good lesson and because I just felt this sort of you know, I do have this pact where it's like okay, so I took all those stories from all those wonderful Australians for 20 years and so you know, um, my pact is is that that I'm going to show them that you know, now's my time to tell my story. You've got it all. It's all out on the table. And I did put it all out, a lot of it all. I mean, there's probably stuff I didn't say a lot, a lot, but it was probably too much I did say. And uh, and so I know that there's too much I did say. And so, but that was the pact. It was like, okay, if it ever comes time for me to talk about myself, the reader gets it all, you know. And uh, but um, but the oh man, it's so interesting. Or, or yeah, the, the I get surprised by the things that I've said, and that the journal doesn't sort of run with, or that I go, oh man, yeah, yeah there's oh, a whole a interesting great, story that was a about great this. Quote. Yeah, why didn't they use that? That was a great quote. You didn't, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and then you just and then you realize, like, oh, get over yourself. They're just trying to fill the space, man, and they're just trying to beat the deadline by five, you know. And and it's just they don't have time to. They don't have time to write some bloody Pulitzer Prize-winning piece, so just just um, give them what they need and shut the hell up and shorten your quotes and um, and uh, you know try and make their job a bit easier. So, uh, but I mean, you know, hence what the, the other the reason why I love doing this podcast with you guys is because it really gives me a chance to highlight this woman named Alice Wood, who you know she's the kind of she's basically like campaign manager for Harper Collins and kind of. Absolutely, any success of Boy Swallows Universe um, and all our Shimmering Skies, you know, I just it's just owes, I just owe to her. I mean, it's it's just quite simply a fact that she brilliantly, you know, just knew a way to sort of get that book out there and and a way to sort of take my story and and help it sort of talk about the book. And she was just brilliant and and do it in a way where. There were things like there were people sort of calling maybe that were interested in doing like a really intense full-on sort of thing about, hey, let's let's do this sort of whatever, you know, something about this guy, you know, some big TV thing about this guy and we'll um we'll get in, you know, and it would be big, right? It'd be big publicity. But just her ability to go, how you feel about that? I'm like, I don't feel good about that. <laughs> um and just the way that we could all just sort of look at it and go, let's try and do this in the right way where where I just I'm doing it all for the right reasons and not in a cheesy sort of sickening. So she's your she's your publicist. Yeah, essentially, Alice? she's sort yeah, of it's it's sort of she's that, and then she's sort of um, 
like just sort of another thing entirely too. Like she's like my right hand kind of woman on on this stuff, and she's a genius. And and it's kind of so she she totally is like the one sort of getting things out there. But she also, you know, is just organizing like the posters that go on the bookshop windows and uh, and the standees and the tote bags and like just coming up with brilliant ideas of things to hang in bookshop windows that might get the book noticed. But also, yeah, totally like, hey, these people have called. Um, do you want to do this interview? And this will mean this. And 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 just trying to strategically look at how we can best approach all that side of things. And she's just tireless, man. I, I have no doubt that you guys are the hardest workers around. I, I know it. I know PR people are just insanely busy human beings. And and so being on the other side, has it changed your impression of PR people? You seem to be able to empathise with everybody, Trent. So, yeah. <laughs> oh man, no, no, com- completely, completely. And I, but I, I always have had a sort of good empathy for what they're trying to do. And um, but just just I know a schedule now. You know, I get that. I really do. And I get um, the importance of just sticking to <laughs> to that stuff and 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 the difficulties that someone like Alice goes through um, because she's not just doing that for me. She's doing it for all these other writers, right? And, and I find that amazing. And I see her doing these emails at 10 o'clock at night and I'm going like, and I will literally send it. It's like, can you please not worry about how I feel about that interview or something and just go to bed, you know? And it's like, but that's really cool because you know you get a sense that they might have your back and stuff, and and that's really that's really lovely, you know. And um, yeah, so no, I, I definitely do. So I do. It has seen. I've seen all sides. I have seen it from all sides now too. And you know, and I and I see it from. Oh, well, the funny thing is, is is I do. You know, it's particularly on the interviewing. Someone's interviewing you side. It's just like. I do see the um, the rude journo aspect now. I'm just like, aha, uh-huh, hang on, back off, back off. You've gone too far now. That's way too personal, you know, and, and, and like that sort of side of things. It's just like cool your jets, uh, step back. I'm not going to talk about that. You know, and it's been really, that's been really in, enlightening as well. So what, Amazing. what do you reckon that the biggest learning curve then is in promoting these books for you? Like, you know, what can you give us some tips around the PR or publicity things that you found worked really well when you've been promoting your book? Oh, um, the reader is everything. The reader is everything. Um, the, the, the book could be the greatest book in the world, but, um, you know, you're not going to know about it, about what you've done without the reader having read it and then informing you. Like I, I found it really powerful to hear some thoughts from people who'd write in to me and go, Hey, um, you know, this, this book you wrote, it's, it's like, I haven't, uh, I haven't spoken to my dad in 20 years, but I called him after it. And, and you, you don't hear that unless someone's helped you get that book into people's hands. And so, um, it, it's it's all about um, it's all about uh, letting people know. Ah, oh, man, it always and this is the case. It will always get back to the power of storytelling. Ultimately, you're trying to show people what this story is about and what you're about. And and um, that was the big takeaway. And and you know, okay, well, here, here's the here's the big secret. Like it's like. So I wrote this book, All Ashramming Skies, and the whole theme of that book, the great answer that this guy, Longcoat Bob, has to give anyone who talks to him this sort of sorcerer figure, the Wizard of Oz figure inside that book. He just has this one line, which is carry all you own, own all you carry. And and that is um, 
very powerful. Like that's just a great sort of lesson for anyone, Australian history, for politicians. You know, we can own our mistakes and we can move forward with them and we can carry them with us and let them be the making of us. Just like every kindness and every great success we've had, we can take our failings as well and let that make us better. And, uh, well, in, in terms of these books and stuff, I was terrified of owning my story, of, of, of carrying it you know, and being proud of it and owning it and sort of showing it and putting it out there and just going, well, that's it, that's it and that's me. And um, But the minute I carried what I owned um, it was the minute really, really good things started happening to me, you know, and, and I just thought that was the lesson and, and if I could get across to anyone, it's just trying just – just carry what it is that it, that is about you and that, and that is helping make the world a more interesting place you know and 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 you know and it all comes back to story you know and so it's sort of yeah i just realized the power of accessing a story and the you know and 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 in terms of on the book sort of tour world a series of stories that connect you know in a deep way and so the stories i wanted to tell about all our shimmering skies were deep again and i tell them for a reason they're not cheesy ways to help sell the book they're just my truths you know which is i miss my old man in the writing of this and i started looking at the sky and talking to the sky and the, the sky didn't talk back but i felt good just talking to the sky and and so okay well it's a whole book about gifts that fall from the sky and the things the sky gives us and and, uh, you know, so it just, okay, you tell a story like that and I'm, I'm telling you and then people connect to it and they go, hey, man, thanks for talking about that sky stuff because I lost my mum five years ago and I talked to her up there as well and I don't hear anything back but I feel good as well and it's all about finding those things that are inside you that you probably do feel a little bit embarrassed about talking about but they're actually the things that you carry and they're the things that you should own as well and that's been the great lesson for me on the on the whole sort of PR front. It's just just go for it, you know, and, and just own it. Own own everything you're trying to do, you know what I mean? Whatever it is, it's just own it, you know, so, yeah. And Boy Swallows Universe is being made into a theatre production as well yeah. as a movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Ridiculously. Are you, are, you involved, are you involved in any of the PR behind that or is that all up to the actors and the directors from here on? No, no, I am involved, like particularly the stage thing. And we have to sort of, you know, they'll come to me and they'll say, hey, look, can you do this interview for us or can you – and that will come from Queensland Theatre largely and they'll go through – well, they'll go through Alice sometimes and and uh, and they'll go, look, look, or would you do this event for us? Because, I mean, I am inherently connected to that book, you know, and so it's sort of I felt this sort of a bit of a responsibility to go, well, firstly, to, to make sure it's not shit, like the stage play isn't shit. Like that's been my first sort of like, please don't make it. Yeah, please don't make it crap. Um, because, well, here's the thing with all of that stuff. That book, that book turned out beyond my wildest dreams you know what i mean like there's there's nothing that could happen to that book concerning that book that that could go any higher you know for me like it just can't get any higher and it can only go south you know and so so all my thing is like if if i venture into that world it's like can we just not can we not make it go south you know and uh, can we just keep this nice sort of run of, of whatever this thing is doing for people like it's doing lovely things for people and I don't want those people to walk away with a bad taste in their mouth and I, I'm certain they won't because I've seen the things they're doing and it's unflipping believable and we're we're expanding the story and it's going deeper and more colorful it's just wild it's gonna be literally the yeah, people are gonna drive away from that theater having known the meaning of life it's um it's gonna be quite wild but uh but but in terms of that sort of PR side I'm doing a definitely um 
helping out wherever I can, essentially. So it's like, yeah, and around probably, so now it's, it got delayed because of COVID and it's going to happen next year now. Um, around September, in September, Brisbane Festival, it's going to be unbelievable. But um, I'll definitely be sort of shouting it from the rooftops around that time wherever wherever I can and whatever I can do to help. I mean, it's a fine line. You've always got to watch your own sort of like, okay, I've, okay, I've given too much to Boyce Wallet University. It's like, all right, stop. I need to be writing my third book kind of thing. So it's a fine balance. But And then the TV show, it's like, man, I'm so excited about that. Like it's they're, they're, they're sort of looking at a like eight-part long-form series. Joel Edgerton's on board. And I don't, I'm not allowed to sort of say um, there's just particularly a couple of directors and it's as it's as good as directing in Australia gets. So, I mean, I'm dying to tell you the name, but, uh, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, and it's it's some really exciting stuff. So I'll be, you know, I mean, that's just stuff I'm ha- Like I just love talking about. I'm such a film sort of TV nerd anyway. So it's sort of like, you know, I mean, the cool thing about that is that this, it was pop culture that helped us Dalton boys escape from the dark stuff back in the 80s and the early 90s. And, and I find it so wild that now it's kind of our story is part of the pop culture, you know, and that is perhaps even, dare I say, maybe helping some kid escape out there in Brisbane who's, you know, in some shitty situation and but they might be able to sort of find their way out, you know, through this kind of wild story of Eli Bell, that that makes me so proud. You know, if that if that ever happened, if that got on some TV out at, uh, you know, Housing Commission Logan or, you know, the versions of old Housing Commission Brackenridge that exist now, I just want some kid to sort of see that, turn on the telly and see that story. I think it could be something incredibly powerful for them. So there's a little bit of a blurred line there really um, nowadays, whereas a journalist, you also have to promote your own work and your stories. You know, you really have to PR yourself a little bit. Mm, you mm. know, most journos we know have their own professional Twitter and they've got professional Facebook and social media. So um, what do you think of that change where you are actually, instead of just being a journo, <laughs> you're now kind of like the PR for yourself? Uh, yeah, I came to it reluctantly and I was off Twitter. I didn't even, I didn't ever get on, I, I mean, I was on Twitter like for a while, but I did, I like even when it first started out, I remember working for Q Weekend and, uh, and we had a person tell us like, you should all be on Twitter and you should be promoting your stories. And I was like, oh, come on, you know, really? And then, um, and then I remember getting on there once for a story and then I just, it was just wonderful to get the the feedback first off and just to see people engage and kind of it was such a quick response thing as opposed to letter writing feedback you know that was really good and that was a bit of a um i don't know may, maybe i maybe it was some sort of elixir or something and i went oh this this is good okay i like this and uh you know and that that can be to your detriment too because as as my wife will tell you um you know more than once has she found me in the kitchen on a Saturday when we should be getting ready to go to her parents' house um, there on bloody Twitter looking at what, um, you know, Joe Blow in um, Northern Territory thinks about my piece on uh, Wally Lewis or something. And, uh, and uh, you know, so you've got to find a fine line about, about what you do. But, it, look, I do find it, it it is kind of the nature of the, of the beast. It's kind of – and, and it's, it's, I find it a very interesting time because – I was definitely raised on that sort of sense of, you know, uh, it, first and foremost, be humble. You know, like just be – don't go – something good has happened. Don't go ruining it by telling the world about it. You know what I mean? Like that's sort of the philosophy and it's a very Australian philosophy. Don't go – you know, don't big note yourself and don't bloody go trumpeting your own bloody achievements or whatever. But I think social media is sort of um, the very opposite of that 
but it, it and 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 it's it's just I have to look at it in a different way. I have to I have to go. There is a new generation that the DNA is different, and and it's kind of like they don't see it like that. And I and I'm yet to I'm yet to get it, but I'm starting to understand it. Or I sort of and and it's like when I wrote these books, like it was like they're like, oh man, you really should. And I like I got an Instagram account because of that, and. And then they said, and I'm like, the, the, the name Trent Dalton was taken. And I called it Trent Dalton author. And it was all this sort of, and just coming to terms with this. And I'm so bad at it because I just, I can't, I can't clock in to the really cool people who go on Instagram and just post some cool random photograph. And, you know, so I just can't, because I find it really icky and hard to sort of go, well, for one, I can't do that whole, like, oh, look at this great moment my family's in right now or something i find that quite hard but uh but anyway like aside from all that i do think it is a bit of a kind of a thing that i just think all journalists have to embrace and and it's it's just the way in the future that people will connect with our stories and our our long-form pieces long-form pieces will always survive long-form journalism will always survive because storytelling will always survive being given that storytelling is the greatest invention we've ever come up with and people will never tire of it and uh and so but but what won't survive is is the formats in which we're getting these stories out to people you know what i mean and so we have to really roll with um you know, with the, with the punches on that, and just go. Um, all right, well, I do understand that I need to sort of get this out there a bit, and to get it out there, maybe you have to own it a bit, you know, and own own the fact that you maybe did some good work in it. You know what I mean? And maybe maybe you should be proud of it. And <laughs> but I don't know. I, I I mean, can you guys give me some advice on that? Actually, like, let's say I've written a story. Where is, and, I, and I'm and I and I'm proud of it. Right in the weekend, Oz Mag. How do I how do I get that out there on a Saturday morning? You know, how do like do I do I go? Hey guys, like what I tend to do is like some stupid thing, like, hey guys, you know, um, would love you to read this piece. It's about blah blah blah, um, and this is what I got out of it. You know, or you know, I don't know, all within whatever 100, 150 characters. But is that the best way to do that, or is there other ways that you can sort of do that? This is the way it's kind of going, isn't it? That you really do have to just promote yourself. You have to take it up the cause yourself and you know unfortunately that's where people are these days is is on social media so yeah it's definitely a, a share um story um I think what sorry go you, yeah. I was just going to say the biggest issue really is um is paywalls now so that obviously is a really a tricky yes yes yeah um, yeah and, and it does really um limit how you do it um it is hard, hey. It is. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I'll send a story out, and then, yeah, people will be like, ah, oh, damn, paywall. Like, dude, you know, why are you sending me this? And I'm like, oh, well, I was hoping you might subscribe, right. <laughs> you know. But it's, yeah. yeah, but it's like, yeah, you're, you're right. It's tough, yeah. And it's our responsibility if we want to continue to have wonderful journalism that we can access to buy subscriptions and to be involved uh, well, in the process. Well, here's the thing. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, that's the thing and it's really hard and I hate to bash people over the head with it, but it's like you're trying to remind them. It's like, oh, look, man, I just have lost five really close friends um, from the whole world of journalism there because we can't afford to do this but the the interesting can i ask you this overkill like i'm 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 now just going oh man i think i need to pull back like it's like you know what i mean just like no, do people do people ever get sick of just seeing your face like it's just like i'm just thinking oh man so, you can just yeah, know so someone I, too well what what i well i feel like i know you i feel like it's a really unbalanced relationship i feel like i know you better than you know me 
Um, so, um, but what I sometimes say to my clients, and I know that um, I don't need to tell you how to suck eggs. No, please, you know. Get yourself over the fact that you feel self-conscious about being on social media is to actually say being self-conscious is part of the ego. So completely let go of your ego and just focus on the connection, which I think you that's exactly what you do. Oh, with, I always follow your Twitter. Um, I think I think you've really nailed Twitter in terms oh. of um, how it's authentic to you. Oh, um, thank you. That's think, really good to know. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think if you started doing random <laughs> shirtless selfies, oh man, I love it. No, seriously, thank you so much. That's really good. It's like I yeah, because I've never spoken to someone you know properly about that to someone like you guys who know. So um, that's cool. Okay, I like that. You're right. You're right. You're so right. That that thing that I'm feeling icky about is only wrapped up in my own ego and no one else's probably think could give us stuff, you know? Yeah, you're so right. Yeah. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. And it's quite liberating. I do it to myself as well because I have to share on social. Joe shares on social as well. Yeah. And, I, you know, being a similar generation to you, it's not something that is in our natural DNA. But yeah, we, yeah. we need to be up to date. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Trent, listen, thank you so much for your time. We were absolutely thrilled to have a chance to chat to you and, and best of luck with all the PR, um, <laughs> answering the tricky questions and the uh, oversharing. Uh. We're looking forward to it all. And um, I hope you have a great time um, with The Shimmering Skies. And we're really looking forward to the movie and the TV series. Oh, oh, man. Oh, so thank great. you so much. There's something, um, there's some sky stuff I'd love with Dinah. Like there's, anyway, in that regard too, I would love to tell you sometimes. This has been fun. You guys are amazing. Good luck with everything and um, well done on the podcast. This is cool. Thank, thank you, So we promised at the beginning of the show that we would tell you what this week's jargon gem means. An op-ed is an opinion piece. It sits within the editorial section of the paper or magazine. It literally stands for opposite the editorial page. It's a written article that expresses the opinion of the author, usually not affiliated with the publication's editorial team. They're different from editorials or those written by in-house journalists or letters to the editor, which are submitted by readers. An op-ed allows the author to freely express their undiluted opinion, and it's often passionate and persuasive in nature, as opposed to news which is meant to be strictly unbiased. They're sometimes written by business or industry leaders, politicians, past or present, or even academics. Essentially, someone with an interesting perspective that perhaps contextualises or personalises news or events. It's interesting, though, that many people reading op-eds don't differentiate them from news and call bias on them, which is actually what they're meant to be. Well, it's that age-old dilemma, isn't it, as humans, even with the best intent, can we ever be completely unbiased? But that's the beauty of the op-ed. It's openly labelled as an opinion piece and offers a diversity of perspectives. So thank you for tuning in to our passion project. It's PR Darlings. Do all the things, share and subscribe. See you next week.